Good morning. I, uh, it's such a privilege to be able to come before you this morning and, and deliver uh, the message. Uh, certainly, I appreciate Brother Justin asking me that. Uh, I always count it a privilege when I'm given the opportunity to share God's word, whether that's be, being from the pulpit, from the classroom, on a one-on-one basis. It's just such a privilege uh, to do that. And I, I think you know, that's what God wants us to do, is to share his message, uh, regardless of what that message may be. And, and so I would ask that you open your Bibles this morning uh, to 2 Timothy 3. We're going to read, although the focal passage is 16 and 17, we're going to read beginning in verse 14. <clears throat> but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words, dear Lord. We thank you for uh, the gospel. We thank you, Father, for providing us uh, the the gospel that we can know how to be saved, that we can know how that we should act, so we can know how better to serve you. Heavenly Father, we just adore you. You are great. You are powerful, dear Lord. But Father, your, your greatness dear Lord, shows us just how inadequate we are. Father, we come before you in confession, dear Lord, for our inadequacies. Father, we ask you to forgive us of our sins. I can say with Apostle Paul, Father, that I am the chief of sinners. And I pray, dear Lord, that you will help us always remember that the standards by which we compare ourselves is not against each other, but the standards are against what you are in your holiness. We ask, Father, dear Lord, that as we open your word and we endeavor to seek from your word the message you have us uh, today, Father, that you would just bless that message. Father, help that my personality or, or my mannerisms doesn't block that message, Father, but help me, dear Lord, that as, as I bring the message to Use the words that you would want me to use, Father, to use the expressions you would want me to use, Father, so that I I can be effective in delivering your message. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Paul is writing Timothy here. He's explaining to Timothy, uh, one, he he goes back to, to Timothy's upbringing. Timothy was up brought up by a godly grandmother and a godly mother. He reminds Timothy that he had been brought up that way. He talks to Timothy uh, about the sacred writings that he's been acquainted with. Now, this is our first indication that Paul is speaking to the inspiration of God's word, is he calls back the sacred writings. Now, We know that at this time, 
we didn't have the New Testament. It was being written. Uh, much of it had been written by this time, but uh, he was referring to the Old Testament as these sacred writings. And I don't know if you recall a, a few months back, Justin led a, a, on Wednesday nights a class called Jesus on Every Page. Jesus on Every Page. And, and in that class, we learned that Jesus is in the Old Testament. Now, you know, when you poll the typical per- people or, you know, you, you'll actually hear people talk about how, uh, well, Jesus didn't say that or Jesus didn't uh, comment on that or whatever. And they forget that Jesus is God and Jesus existed from the very foundation of the world before the foundation. In fact, Jesus was not created. Jesus is self-evident just like God is self-evident because Jesus is God. And, and so Jesus and the gospel has been on the pages of all scripture throughout time, throughout history. Jesus has been brought out from the time of creation. So what Paul is telling Timothy in these is, is don't forget this. Don't forget these sacred writings. Don't, believe, don't forget the way you've been brought up. And then he goes on into our focal passage in, in 16, uh, talking about how all scripture, including the scripture that he is writing, Paul is writing, including the scripture that has already been written as part of the New Testament, that has, is making its way around the churches of the first century, including the scripture in the Old Testament. All scripture is breathed out by God. We're inspired by God. You know, the book, the Bible is 66 books written by some 45 authors uh, over a period of 1,500 years and it's packed into a single volume that would probably imprinted account for about 2,000 pages. But it's got a consistent message from end to end, from the very beginning, in the beginning God created, all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. There's a consistent message of Jesus Christ. In the most recent Barnum uh, survey of the Bible. And every year, Barna, which is a Christian survey organization, every year they survey uh, the American people on their thoughts of the Bible. And they've been doing this for a number of years, but in their most recent survey, 79% of Americans identified the Bible with the term sacred or holy writings. Uh, This compared with about 13% that said that there are no sacred writings. Certainly, there's opinions in between there. Nearly half of Americans, uh, 49%, believe believe the Bible contains all that is necessary to live a meaningful life. Unfortunately, 16% believe that the Koran, the Book of Mormon, other uh, writings are all essentially the same. 51% of Americans believe that the Bible has too little influence on American society today. 27% believe that it has about the right influence. 19% of Americans, which interesting, this has grown every year, 19% of Americans believe it has too much influence on. When asked to choose between the words to describe the Bible, the words being inspired, historical, rule book, fiction, or harmful, 52% chose inspired. Uh, 25% chose historical, 9% rule book, 8% fictional, and 2% harmful. 
Amazingly, 83% of Americans rated themselves as somewhat knowledgeable about the Bible. Only 12%, though, rated themselves as highly knowledgeable about the Bible. 33 was moderate. Now, getting to the actual view of the Bible, 33% said that, that it is the inspired word of God with some verses meant to be symbolic. 22% it's the, said it's the actual word of God to be taken literally with 43% stating some deviation of it's either a book written by man, uh, it's got some good advice, uh, it has errors, it is, but it's not written by God. <clears throat> it's amazing when you compare these numbers that uh, you, know, you can kind of be encouraged by 79% considered the Bible sacred, but as you examine the numbers, it becomes less encouraging when you get right down to what people really believe about the Bible. The survey really doesn't tell us, though, although it, it uses terms like inspired and terms that we would identify with in a particular way, the survey doesn't really get down to what does that mean to the individual? What do they mean by inspired? You know, a few years ago, there was a split uh, with, in, among the Southern Baptists, and some of you may recall this if, if you've been a Southern Baptist for some time and uh, paying attention. But there was a split between a segment of uh, Baptists that were more uh, moderate or, or, or liberal in their leaning and the conservative Southern Baptists over the Bible and over what we, how we should view the Bible. Uh, we, we use terms like inerrant, and, and we'll get to some, some of these terms, but we use terms like this, and there were some segment of Southern Baptists that didn't believe that we should be telling others, Southern Baptists, how they should think about the Bible, whether it was inerrant or not. This struggle went on for a number of years, and, and then finally, uh, the, modern, the moderates, the liberal element, uh, gave up, and they formed their own association, uh, the, uh, Christian, uh, the Cooperative Bi uh, Baptist Fellowship. They did this because they, uh, they felt like that they had, they had lost and we had won. Uh, and you, you might look at it that way, but I don't see it as a win-lose. I don't. I see it as we, we have a significant number of Baptists that lost the very foundations of what we believed. And they departed from that foundational belief. And if we don't believe in the Bible as our foundation, what do we believe? You know, many of these people said that, oh, the, the conservatives are emphasizing the Bible, the, the word, the, 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 the very book over Jesus Christ himself. Well, I, I disagree with that. I don't, I don't see the two as inseparable. If we believe that Jesus is the object of all scripture, if Jesus is recorded on every page, like the study says, how can we separate the two? We see that we have the foundation of the book, the Bible, as our foundation for who Jesus is. There's a story uh, and I'm, I'm told it's true, but I, I read it. You know, sometimes you, you do research and you read these stories and they say they're true. They're, 
they may or may not be. <laughs> they may be true. But it, it was interesting, and, and I'll share that with you. There was a new pastor that had come to a church, and he was uh, touring the, the Sunday school classes on a particular Sunday, and he went into a children's class, and, uh, and they were studying there. And uh, he asked, he said, well, who broke down uh, the wall of Jericho? And a young boy there that was brave, he said, I don't know, but I didn't do it. And, and so the pastor turned to the teacher there and said, you know, is this the normal uh, for response that I could expect out of the class? And the teacher replied, look, I've known this boy for a long time. If he said he didn't do it, I believe, I believe him. <laughs> so the, the pastor was a little disgusted. He kind of was surprised, and he walked out and ran into one of the deacons, and he, he said, uh, I'm... He told the deacon about this reaction, and the deacon said, I've known the boy, and I've known the teacher for a long time, and and I I assure you, none of them had anything to do with this destruction. By this time, the pastor uh, was a little bit uh, heart-sick, and and he reported the incident to the education committee, And, and the education committee said, we see no point in making an issue out of who's to blame here. Let's just pay the bill for the damage and charge it to build an upkeep. Anyway, our insurance may cover it. So, I mean, that's kind of a humorous story. Uh, again, I don't, I don't know if it's true or not. But it, it, it may surprise you in our churches today how little people know about the Bible. When, when put to the test, what is in the Bible? I mean, we've all had the Bible drills where, you know, some cute Bible drill uh, leader says, turn to Hezekiah 1-7, and everybody makes a frantic rush only to look up and realize there's no Hezekiah. Were you looking? I, I don't know, but anyway. What we believe about the Bible is essential to what, how we study the Bible, how we view the Bible, how we go about studying the Bible. Do we study it as a sacred text? Do we study it as the living word of God? Or do we study it as just a, a, a book of wise sayings and notions? Do we study it as a book that's relevant for today? Or do we study it as a book that uh, is, is probably not relevant, it just has some, some good rules to follow? How we study the book defines what we believe. I'm going to read to you the, out of the Baptist Faith and Message on Holy Scripture. And, and by the way, as, as you know, we've adopted the Baptist Faith and Message as our statement of faith here at, at First Baptist. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union, and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, religions, opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. Now, there's a whole lot of words there, <laughs> and, and we can dissect them and we can pull them apart. I mean, the, the faith and message was written by committee, 
And, and certainly, as, as we know, that, that takes some time. But let me just sum that up on, on the Baptist belief. We believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. It is infallible, it is inerrant, insufficient in all things, and it's all about Christ. That sums up what we should believe about the Bible, what we do, what we confess that we believe about the Bible. So it brings us to the question, is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible reliable? Now, I'll tell you another quick story to illustrate this. When Doreen and I were in Connecticut, uh, I I served on the eldership and was uh, responsible uh, to lead a search for an associate pastor. Uh, our associate pastor had left, and, and, and we need to, to, to fill that. And uh, I might add, we were a member of the only Southern Baptist church in, in New Haven, uh, probably uh, one of the few in all of Connecticut, certainly one of the few uh, evangelical churches in, in, in Connecticut. Uh, if you don't know anything about Connecticut, uh, less than 1% of people of the population of the state profess any type of Christianity. So finding a church up there is, is uh, difficult, and, and God led us to a wonderful, wonderful church. But uh, anyway, in the course of interviewing uh, candidates, uh, we came across a candidate that when we asked him, as we ask all candidates what they believed about Scripture, he used the term reliable. And... You know, that sounds innocent enough. But what it came, what became obvious is he was using the term reliable in place of inerrant. And it kind of disturbed us a little bit. You know, why, why would he do this? And I mean, this was a guy with impeccable credentials. He had gone to, uh, he had two masters, uh, one of uh, divinity, one of theology, the one of theology from a very prestigious, uh, good seminary. Uh, in, in the New England area. Uh, he was working on his PhD, again, with a, uh, a school that was uh, a, a prominent school. But So we pressed him on this. I mean, we couldn't let this one go. Uh, the, the eldership pressed him on, well, why wouldn't he use the term inerrant? And he said, inerrant, in, in his view, uh, is too controversial because what it, mean, it can mean different things to different people. And, you know, he, he preferred the term reliable because the scripture is truly reliable. And, and come to find out, his, uh, his PhD mentor uh, had written a paper on this very topic. And, you know, he was in somewhat parroting what his PhD mentor had said. But the key here is how do you base reliability? Right? On what do you base reliability? Reliability becomes a relative term if you don't have a basis for reliability. Now, I firmly believe the scripture is reliable, but I believe that because of it being inspired, it being inerrant, and it being infallible. So it is true. The scripture is reliable. So how do we get to that? How do we get to this reliability? Well, I think one part of that is the three legs, what I call the three legs of the proverbial stool. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen a milking stool, but it has three legs. And without one of those legs, you're going to fall over. 
So the three legs are inspiration, infallibility, and errancy. So let's first look at inspiration. And, and you know, the, the ESV, which I read out, uh, substitutes God breathed, right? Or all scripture is breathed out by God. And it, that really captures what inspiration is and what inspiration means. Uh, inspiration is a term used by people in a lot of different ways. And, and that was, this, this candidate had a good point there. Uh, sometimes words can mean different things. And, you know, we have to understand what they mean and, 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 and what it does. So, I mean, we might say that a poet was inspired, right? Uh, that, that poet was inspired to write a poem. We may say that a, uh, an artist was inspired when they painted a picture. But when we talk about the inspiration of the Holy Scripture and we talk about God breathing out, it wasn't that he was inspiring the authors. He was inspiring the very words. The very words. And, and that's the key here. It's not that Paul was inspired to write Paul was moved by the Holy Spirit to write particular words. And so the origin of Holy Scripture is God. And then, you know, the term infallibility. Infallibility speaks to the authority and enduring nature of of the word. Uh, To be infallible means that something is incapable of failing, and and therefore it's binding and it cannot be broken. 1 Peter 1, 23, 25 says... Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all glory like the flower, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Yes. See, the authority of scripture cannot be broken. Jesus affirmed that when, uh, again, he was addressing a very difficult passage in, in, in John 10, 34 and 35. And he said, the scripture cannot be broken. Jesus Christ himself was authenticating scripture. So inspiration talks about the origin of the Bible. Infallibility talks about the firmness and infallibility of the Bible. And, it, and how it has that authority. And these are closely related, but di- uh, different terms. But then the last leg of the stool is inerrancy. Inerrancy simply means the Bible is well error. And, and, it, and its belief is totally uh, truthful and, and trustworthy. It's a true account of God's word. And this has been a challenge by uh, modern and liberal theologians. When I say modern, you know, it started in the 20th century. Uh, It it started by people uh, trying to pick apart the Bible, trying to pick it apart in ways of saying, well, uh, you know, this says this here and this says this there, and, and that can't be. But in every examination of the scripture, we find that while that may be paradoxical to us, you know, a paradox is a seeming contradiction. When you strip it apart and you read it and you study it, it's not at all contradictory. You know, there's parts of the Bible. The Bible has to be taken in the genre that it was written. There's, the Bible is composed of all kinds of styles, literary, uh, apocryphal. 
uh, it, it's, it, it's written in different styles that uh, has to be writ, read in those particular styles. But inerrancy speaks to that it is without error. You know, the, there was uh, the Evangelical Theological Society issued a statement. It was called uh, the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. And it went into great detail detailing why the Bible is inerrant. It's inerrant because primarily of four things. One, it's attached to the character of God. So what does that mean attached to the character of God? Well, if we believe it's God's word and God cannot lie, and it tells us in Hebrews 6, uh, 18 and Titus 1, 2 that God cannot lie, then how can we say that his word is, has error in it? Because if God cannot lie intentionally because he's God and he can't, God cannot err because he's all-knowing, he can't say something in error, how can his word uh, be in error? <clears throat> Two, it's taught in the scriptures. As you know, we, we've talked about before, uh, Peter and Paul have authenticated each other in scripture. Uh, in, in 2 Peter 3, 14 and 16, therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. For there, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do with other scriptures. Peter was affirming Paul's writing as scripture when he refers to it as Paul writing in the wisdom, and when he refers to it uh, as they do other scriptures. Also, inerrancy is the historic position of the church. Um, you know, for, for centuries, no one questioned the inerrancy of the Holy Word. No one questioned it whatsoever. Uh, as Al Mohler points out, some, even some errantists, those that, that uh, believe in the Bible could contain error, even some errantists have agreed that inerrancy has been the standard view of the Christian church down through the centuries. And he cites uh, Anglican scholars, the, the Hansen brothers, who said the Christian fathers and the medieval tradition continued this belief in, in inerrancy and the Reformation did nothing to weaken it. On the contrary, since for many Reformed theologians, the authority of the Bible took place which the Pope had held in medieval scheme of things, the inerrancy of the Bible became more firmly maintained and explicitly defined among reformers. And then, most importantly, I think, in inerrancy is that uh, it upholds the doctrines that we hold, we hold dear. For, for instance, salvation. You know, there's a passage like, I think Brother Justin might, might have read this last week, uh, Ephesians 1, 4, and 6, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
See, in, in, inerrancy, if we don't hold to inerrancy, how do we know that the words for salvation and how we attain salvation through God's grace are true? And that's the, the dicey part. If we start questioning the errancy of Scripture, if we start questioning that, how do we know which is true and which isn't? If we, but if we claim it all as God's holy word, holy, inspired, infallible, without error, then we don't have to worry about that. Also, there's physical support. There's the ancient, you know, just the study of the historical documents, the ancient writings. Um, you know, the, the, the New Testaments were written in Greek language between uh, 50 and 100 AD. There's 5,000 Greek manuscripts in existence that we know about. And, and there's more than 25,000 copies. And when you compare all those writings against any other method by which you date and, uh, and cut to the authenticity of any other historical document, the, the Bible far exceeds anything else that's ever been written. Uh, I mean, there's uh, Plato's manuscripts, which no philosopher would question Plato's manuscripts, would they? But Plato's manuscripts don't even pass the test that the, the, the Bible passes in accuracy in, in ancient writing. And, and it's unaltered. You can take all of these texts and, and, you know, with just minor deviations that have no uh, degree on substance, these texts all lined up, all these thousands of texts. And the Old Testament, the same thing. You know, you know uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls affirmed the authenticity of the, the, Dead, the, the Old Testament scripture. So we have all of the, this evidence uh, of the Bible and it being the holy word of God, of it being reliable. So let, let's turn now to the applicability of scripture. So how does the scripture apply? And Part of that is, is, is in the, you know, you know, it's interesting. Applicability and relevance kind of mean the same thing. And you'll see many churches say, you know, when they advertise, they say, we make the Bible relevant. Well, no, we don't. The Bible is relevant. It's nothing that we do that makes it relevant. God makes it relevant. Now, we try, we try to exposit the word of God in a way that, you know, that is winsome and, and uh, applicable to people's lives. But there's nothing we can do to make it more relevant than it already is, because it is. It's truthful. It's relevant. So it's relevant for us today because God made it relevant. And, and what does the scripture say? And going back, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training. So how do we apply the scripture? Well, we apply it through these methods, through teaching. The word of God is profitable for teaching. In fact, if we don't teach from the word of God, what are we teaching from? And so many churches today have departed from a biblical-based teaching model. They will teach you philosophy. They will teach you all kinds of other things departing from the Bible. Now, I praise God for our pastor, Justin. He uses a, a style of preaching that's called expository. In other words, he's expositing, he's explaining things from the Bible. He's not taking an opinion and then finding a, a passage to back up that opinion. That's very important. You know, when, when we do our Bible studies, there, there's a method of Bible study that became popular some years back. 
Uh, and, you know, and there's some value in it, but there's some danger in it. It's where you read a passage and then you go around the room and say, tell me what you think, tell me what you think, tell me what you think. The question isn't what we think. The question is, what is God saying to us? What is God's meaning? And that's what we have to get to when we do Bible study, right? When we're teaching the Bible, we have to be going back to what is God's meaning? What is he trying to tell us? What is he trying to say? How do we measure up to what God has to say? We, you know, it's interesting. We, we teaching is one of the most critical things the Bible talks about. In fact, the Bible tells us in James, don't let many of you be teachers because there's a higher standard, right? Because it's so important that we never teach error, that we have to be cautious that we don't teach it. And we teach in many ways, don't we? We teach in formal settings. We teach from the pulpit. We teach uh, in, by our example. I mean, that's, that's a pretty awesome responsibility to teach by example. So that's where the, the, the words that you say and the life that you live match up. We teach through music. I think it's very uh, telling here. Today's service couldn't have illustrated this more. I mean, wasn't that music great? I, I, I mean, songs like The Power of the Cross, which just exposits scripture. The scripture just leaps right out of that music. You know, Charles uh, Wesley told his brother John Wesley he said, you go on and, and preach your sermons. I'll write the songs, and we'll see who remembers which. And I doubt many of you could stand up and recite one of John Wesley's sermons, but we sing Charles Wesley's songs all the time, don't we? And when we leave here, there's a, a style of music, or <clears throat> often I, I, I note that uh, we, we use sovereign grace music, uh, Sovereign Grace uh, is uh, an association that believes that music ought to teach. In fact, their motto is music that teaches. And it should teach. In fact, you know, there's many Christian songs that I hear that uh, I don't know where they get them from. (laughs) I mean, it's beautiful music. It may be lovely. It may be encouraging. It may be inspirational and not in the God-inspired way, but it didn't come from the Bible. So where did it come from? But yet it's, it's put out there as Christian music. We have to be careful that we teach. And, and then it, the Bible t- t- tells us it's profitable for reproof. Well, what is reproof? Reproof is, it, it's, it sounds kind of harsh, and it is. Uh, it's rebuke, reprimand, re- uh, reproach, and admonish. But And it's a responsibility of Christians to do that. But it's a responsibility to do it based on the word of God, not on personal preference. And that's that's where Christians so, you know, get out of whack sometimes. They talk about, uh, you know, the responsibility to rebuke a brother or to, to, you know, and, and, and they put forth as helpful. But yet, when you examine what they're rebuking about, there's no scriptural basis for what they're saying. They're talking about a preference. You know, we have to acknowledge that, you know, the Apostle Paul says we have great liberty because of the grace of God. So when we go to do that, we need to make uh, sure that we're aligned with Scripture. And and then for correction. Correction, what's the difference between uh, reproof and correction? Well, correction is a, a lighter side of reproof. 
right? It's almost a, you know, if reproof comes about because someone's intentionally violating the word of God or, or doing something, correction is generally uh, an adjustment because someone uh, has erred or they're going down the wrong path. Maybe uh, they're ignorant of the right path, so we correct them. But again, it has to be based on the word of God. It can't be, uh, you know, my personal preference. I mean, I don't, you know, I've seen, uh, lived in the South, grew up in the South, been to church most of my life, all my life since birth, I guess before being born. And, you know, I've seen many churches that just get it wrong on how they correct people. Oh, well, you know, a visitor walks in uh, dressed a certain way and they say, we don't really dress that way here. Who cares how? I mean, you know, the standard ought to be clothed, but, you know, who, who cares? We don't know about that condition of that person's soul. We ought to first care about the soul and then worry about how, how they're dressed or whatever and, and probably not even worry about it then. So correction and then training in righteousness. In certain, training in righteousness is the preventive of the other two, right? Because if we're really train, training people in righteousness and training people in the word of God and doing our responsibility as a church in training people, then they probably won't need correction and they won't need reproof. Training is preventive in, in that it gets ahead of the, the other things. You know, so many churches have departed from this concept of true discipleship and really coming alongside a new Christian or coming alongside a brother and a sister and training them in the way that they should go. You know, this is the same concept that Proverbs talks about for children. Train them up in the way that they should go and when they're old, they won't depart from it. So, and, and that brings us to the final point. So what is the effect of scripture? What is the effect of scripture? Well, Verse 17 says that the effect is that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the effect of Scripture is that completeness. If we have a high view of Scripture, if we use Scripture the proper way, we will have that completeness. We will achieve that completeness. This speaks to the sufficiency of Scripture. Remember in our abbreviated statement, we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. It is infallible, inerrant, and sufficient in all things. Sufficiency means that it will solve. The Bible has the solution for everything that we need to live life and to live it effectively for the glory of God. Everything. You know, so oftentimes we turn to so many alternatives when we face troubles, when the answer is in the word of God. The answer can be sometimes that God is trying to bring us closer to him and closer to his word. And that's what we gain out of going through troubles and going through trials. So scripture is sufficient because it is the way that God teaches us. It is the way that God conveys truth to us. It's the way that God talks to us. You know, there are some denominations that believe in continuing revelation. In other words, God's going to come and tell this prophet something new, right? He's not. It's all in his word. Everything that God has for us is in his word. Now, we have to sometimes struggle to understand that it's there, 
But God is not going to give us any new word. He's given it to us. We need to trust it. We need to love it. We need to believe it. We need to memorize it. We need to study it so that we can be the complete man of God, person of God that he intends for us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time, dear Lord, that we could open your word and learn from it. I hope, Father, that what we've said here will resonate with people, that they will, if they did not have a high view of Scripture, that this will help them uh, have that high view. We pray, dear Lord, that uh, if there's any that does not know Jesus as their personal Savior, that this will be the day that you call them and bring them to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.